Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. O eternal and everlasting Father, we give you thanks and praise that your testimonies are wonderful. That's why our soul holds fast to them. Lord, that you would unfold your words before us to give us light, to impart understanding to even us who are simple. Lord, as we open our mouths, that we would long for your commandments. Lord, that your commandments would touch our very roots of our heart, that we would be able to give you thanks and praise as we look to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to us, as is your way for those who love your name. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 23. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. What is the most powerful and important piece in a chess game? Important, we might answer the king, for the whole game is based upon whether the king survives or whether he is eliminated. Central to the victory game, this whole game centers around and hinges upon this powerful, uh, this important piece. Maybe to say the most powerful piece then is the queen because of all that she can do in moving different directions. Now, some have suggested that maybe the pawn is one of the most underlooked, uh, unique pieces of a chess game. It has special moves that it's able to do that changes on whether it's the first move or other moves. Maybe the, the plurality of them. And if used correctly, it can actually have a great impact on the game. Actually, if you have one pawn left at the end of a game, you're a 25% chance to win. If you have a pawn and a queen, you have a 50% chance that you're going to win. If you have three pawns at the end of the game, you're about 75% chance that you're able to win. However, the most powerful and important part or piece on the, the game of chess is not the pieces on the board, but specifically the one who controls them. The masterful hand that is able to maneuver them and and make the pieces dance on the across the board. 
of the black and white, to be able to accomplish their means and their purposes, to be able to uh, drive an error from their opponent or to be able to uh, bring about a certain uh, move, that masterful hand that moves the pieces. The mind uh, that only knows the rules of the game is able to be able to defeat their opponent. To know not merely just how to use the parts and the pieces, but also how to use them for their means. To be able to get the opponent to be able to respond in certain ways to their own advantage. The mind who is not merely able to be able to do this, to be able to do this four or five moves in advance. The queen in the hand of a fool is no match for a pawn in the hand of a master. We often overlook this important part and piece as we begin and read through the pages of history. We focus on the moving pieces and and the outcomes of what happens on the board of history, but often we forget that masterful hand which ordains all of these pieces for his own glory. Now these metaphors often have their limits, but we do see the master's plan and purposes throughout the pages of Scripture. And this week we understand more of God's plan of how he is to redeem his people and how his people are going to react to God's plan. Now, after the event of the burning bush, Moses now returns from the wilderness to his father's-in-law's house in Midian. Moses, for the past 40 years, has been serving his father-in-law. His life really is divided into three equal parts, the first 40 underneath in Pharaoh's house, the next 40 in the wilderness in uh, Midian, in his father-in-law's house of Jethro, and the last 40 wandering in the wilderness with uh, the people of God. So in this middle section of his life, he's been working for Jethro, keeping his flock, And he is somewhat of a guest in his house, and he's been serving his father-in-law, and so he seeks his permission to be able to leave. Now Moses, that we can see from the pages of Scripture, does not inform Jethro all of his plans and what he has been told by the Lord. Now possible that he is still doubting, he is still uncertain what was going to happen. Maybe he thought it wasn't going to work out, he would uh, return. Or he maybe just thought that the exodus would not take long. Maybe it's just a a blank in pages of Scripture because we do not need to know. But the other possibility is that Moses really did not want to go, as we looked at last week. And really he was hoping that Jethro would be more like Laban and saying no and demanding more work from him. The only reason I say this is that the next, pay, the next passage explains specifically in verse 19 that the Lord said to Moses in Midian that Moses goes and asks Jethro for permission and Jethro says go in peace and yet the next point highlights that Moses, although been given permission by his father-in-law, still has not left. And thus, we then see that the Lord speaks to Moses once more and says, go back to Egypt, all these men you were, 
who are seeking your life are dead. And then Moses takes his wife and his two children. And Moses lingers too long. But what we really see from this passage, as the Lord tells more of Moses more of his plan, is we understand his plan and his purposes. That's what we see firstly, God's plan. God's plan. The Lord speaks to Moses and tells him more of what is going to happen. He's told him specifically that Pharaoh wasn't going to listen, but we understand now more of what this is going to happen in this passage. The Lord is not keeping secrets or any surprises from Moses. He'd been very forthright and outright in what he has expected. He did not tell Moses to go to Pharaoh and everything was going to be fine and, and there was all these surprises. We actually know everything that is going to happen in the story of Exodus up to this point. We've been told by the Lord of all that is going to happen in very broad strokes. Now, the specific details we do not know, But Moses is reminded that he is to go and show these miracles that the Lord has placed in his hand through this staff which he carries. The Pharaoh is to see all these signs and wonders. And again, Moses is merely a vessel from God. Moses does not carry any magic spells or abilities. The prophets are not magicians or powerful people. They're merely a conduit used by God to be able to carry out God's message, God's signs, and God's wonders. Moses knows already that Pharaoh is not going to listen to him unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. We saw this in chapter 3, verse 19. And Moses had been told by God that he will do all these great signs and wonders, and after he has seen them, then Pharaoh will let God's people go. Moses has been shown the signs that he is to be able to perform in front of the people, those three signs that we saw, the staff turning into a serpent, his hand turning leprous and then turning back, restored once again, and the blood turned from the Nile turned into blood, the water turned into blood. But Moses hasn't been told what the signs are that he is going to do in front of Pharaoh. But the Lord tells Moses that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now this is a difficult thing for us to be able to wrap our heads around. And that's why we're going to spend a large portion of our time together talking about what this means. It comes up frequently in the chapters of Exodus, and instead of spending a large amount of time on every time or taking a slitter to be able to understand it, we're going to spend a lot of time now to be able to lay the foundations that as we get to those difficult passages we can understand what is happening. comes up later because it explains that Pharaoh hardens his heart, chapters 8 and 9. Other times it has the implication that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. This divine passive, that although it does not say God hardened his heart, it implies that God is the one hardening his heart. Chapter 7, chapters 8, chapter 9, chapter 14. Other times, it's quite clear that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. In chapter 9, 10, 11, and 14. People can then turn to whatever passage you want and to be able to unpack and say, see, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Or see, God hardened his heart. 
And then what they do is they merely turn to that passage and decide their theology. Others say that this is a specific time in the redemptive historical timeline and therefore is not universal. Now we can also see how this unpacks and understands God's work in salvation and all the big questions that are wrapped around this. Now when I come to a passage like this, what I seek to be able to try and do is let the Bible speak for itself. I'm not a very good gymnast, and I don't want to be a gymnast when it comes to theology, trying to fit and distort my views to to make the Bible make my views make sense. I want to turn to the Bible, and what does the Bible specifically say about these things? How does the Bible help me understand these complex passages? That God does not change. That the Bible does not speak of a bipolar God that changes his mind depending on how he feels because of his mood or the circumstances. So what does the Bible specifically say about this, particularly about this verse here? God hardened, he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. We see God's plan, now we see God's sovereignty. Who hardens Pharaoh's heart? Is it God or is it Pharaoh? The Bible says that both, as the references that I mentioned before. Now we like to have clean answers, don't we? In situations like this, it's either one or the other. We don't like an answer that both. Now, our mind's often merely just thinking categories of black and white. I think this is a a black and white category, but we often seem that they're exactly the same. When we come to these difficult parts, we need to understand what is clear. Pharaoh is a response to sin and his sin, that as Pharaoh hardens his heart, he is sinning against God. Now, God is not the author of sin, and God hardening Pharaoh's heart is not sin. And this ultimately comes down to their nature, that Pharaoh is a sinner, and his response will be sin unless he is regenerate. Now, God is not the author of sin. The best example that I can merely come up with is that from a building site, one that is fresh in my mind. But why does concrete harden? Well, you could say that concrete hardens because you add water to it, and thus it establishes a chemical balance, and therefore that's what it does. Does concrete harden because of the water, or does concrete harden because that's what concrete does? Concrete hardens because it's in its nature. That's what its nature, its composite, is made of. Concrete would... Harden if I left a bag out in the rain. I have a couple of examples of those. Or if I specifically mix it for a certain application, 
Now, obviously, in this situation, concrete hardening is not morally uh, positive or negative. But it helps us understand the truth that the, the two natures of water and concrete work together in this hardening process. Concrete hardens because it's in its nature to harden. Water is wet and therefore causes concrete to harden. Now in this situation, Pharaoh's nature is that of a sinful human being. His sinful heart is at the center of his hardening. Pharaoh's heart hardens because that's what happens when you add water to concrete. When you add this to a sinful heart, that is what happens. That his heart has these properties of concrete that is not a living plant. Unless you have the the breath of spirit within you, the regenerate breath of spirit, your response to grace is always going to be sin. One changes what is dead and stone to a living thing that loves water. A plant loves water. The same truth of water applied to a plant does not apply to concrete. One causes it to grow, one causes another to harden. The same thing is applied. The difference is what its nature is. And that's what we see in this passage and throughout the whole story of Exodus, that God's people see these signs and wonders and what happens to God's people. Their hearts are not hardened. God's people see these signs and wonders as we see at the end of this chapter. After they'd seen, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The people of God see the same water applied to their life, and what do they do? They worship God. What does Pharaoh do? He doesn't have that regenerate heart, so his heart is hardened. Moses will tell Pharaoh in chapter 9, For by now I could have put my hand and struck you or your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. And here are these these signs and wonders on display for Pharaoh. As a sign of grace, Pharaoh could have been wiped out right at the beginning. And yet God shows his grace. But when this grace is applied to Pharaoh, what happens? His heart is hardened because of his sin. These signs are the display of power. That all the names will be God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. See this in Rahab, in Joshua chapter 2, in the walls of Jericho. Rahab hears of God's power as the people walk across the land on dry land in the Red Sea. What does she do? Her response is worship. We see God's plan, God's sovereignty, and thirdly, God's mercy. However, does God acting in this way then make God unjust? Well, this is exactly the question that Paul asks in Romans chapter 9. 
If you turn to Romans chapter 9, verses 15 to 18. But just prior to this section, Paul expresses his deep sorrow for the unbelief as his fellow Israelites and affirms that God's promises have not failed. Not as those who are descended from Israel are part, not all those who have descended from Israel are a part of God's, um, a part of true Israel. And what Paul outlines in this section is that God's sovereign choice throughout all of this is evident. His selection of Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. Now again, people try and explain away these verses. But if we're not left asking the question that Paul asks in verse 14, then we have missed the point. Paul is, is preeminently trying to think ahead to be able to think about the objections people are having. And right after this teaching, Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. Here Paul has just laid out God's sovereign election over whom are his people. And if we do not ask the question, is this unjust on God's part, then we don't understand what Paul is trying to argue. But Paul then turns to this passage and this story in Exodus to be able to understand what this means. Is this unjust on God's part? Paul continues in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Paul uses this example from Exodus of Pharaoh's heart hardening, but also of God's character in his nature. In Exodus chapter 33, which is the first portion which Paul quotes, The Lord tells Moses that he's going to make his goodness pass before him. He's going to proclaim his name, the Lord. He says that I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. That God's plan and his purpose is to be able to show grace and mercy to whomever he wills. And then again in Exodus chapter 9, Paul quotes, For this purpose I raise you up to show you my power, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And we'll look at this more in detail when we get to chapter 9 and then verse 30, chapter 33. But I want to point out what Paul is pointing out in Romans chapter 9. That it's not based on human will or exertion, but ultimately it is on God on whom he shows mercy. That God is sovereign over all things, and that means all things, even the human heart. 
Paul continues in chapter 9 to speak of that example of a potter and a clay, which he gets from the uh, Isaiah. And here in this example, we are the clay on the wheel. So we cannot call out and answer back to the molder and scream, I don't want to be a cup, I want to be a little teapot. His argument focuses on God, as who is supreme over all things, making vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor, all for His glory. That He is the Creator and we are His creation. It shows His majesty and power. Paul explains later that it shows forth His mercy. This is often what people get up in arms about. Not not that God shows forth His glory and His wrath. If people cry out, we want equality from God. But if we all got equality, then no one would be shown mercy. That we would get death, what we deserve, wrath and judgment. No one deserves mercy. That is the definition of mercy. Everyone is evil. Everyone are wicked sinners. This is Paul's point in in Ephesians chapter 2. After speaking of God's election before the foundations of the earth, where do we find ourselves? Paul begins in chapter 2 by saying that we are dead in our trespasses and sin which we all walked in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we are once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind, and we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul explains here, here we are, we're dead. We're wicked sinners, sons of disobedient children of wrath. This is who we are, living and walking to the desires of our flesh. Then in verse 4, but God, been rich in mercy. The the pivotal point, Paul in chapter 2 is saying, this is who you were. What was the deciding factor? What was it that changed the outcome? It wasn't you got your life straightened out. It wasn't you started going to church more regularly. It wasn't because you started praying more. We, by our nature, cannot do that. We're sons of disobedience. We're children of wrath. We are concrete. We need our concrete hearts to be changed to living flesh that when the water of grace is sprinkled upon us, we birth forth in fruit and happiness. We need a change of nature. That nature comes because of God's mercy which he is rich in. Because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. Now often people have this image when we talk about election and predestination and God's calling 
That there's people on the outside of heaven saying, oh, I wish I would come in. I wish I was in there. And people on the inside of heaven saying, yeah, they forced me to come in. I'm stuck here. I want to be on the other side. That doesn't make any sense. That's not what it is. God changes our concrete hearts to receive His mercy and His grace through the work of the Spirit. The only way that a sinner can truly repent is if he's born from above. Twice born. John chapter 3. The truth is that all of our hearts are exactly like concrete. And when we're shown grace, we harden. We need the spirit of life to be able to transform our nature, our very composition from sinners to saints, from hard hearts to hearts of flesh. That's Paul's point in chapter 9. It's not based on human will or exertion, but on the will of God. And thanks be to God, because I cannot change from concrete to any other thing. It has to be through God. It has to be through mercy. Because then all praise and glory and honor goes to Him. Because I do not get what I deserve, but receive the blessings given to me through Christ. And the fourth thing that we see is God's victory. We need to understand that this merely is not just a battle against Pharaoh versus God. But Moses later records in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 4. On their gods also God executed judgments. This is not merely a judgment against Pharaoh, although I think we can see why. Pharaoh has punished and enslaved God's people. He has murdered innocent children by throwing them into the Nile. But it's also a judgment against the gods of the Egyptians. Now this is very important when we think about their beliefs of Pharaoh. was not merely just seen as a man who exercised civil control. But when we also see that the heart of Pharaoh was understood in the Egyptian religion to be as an incarnation of two gods, Ra and Horus. And these gods were sovereign over creation. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God is showing his sovereignty over all of creation. His power against these false gods. Even the most powerful man at this point. Pharaoh will be compelled by God's mighty hand. He will let God's people go. We will see God's plan from the very beginning that the Lord carries out all of what He has said He is going to do through His sovereign power. What we see, even in this passage, is that we're told even of how Pharaoh is going to let the Israelites go. We see already the last great sign and wonder which is done in Egypt, 
is that of the Lord killing the firstborn son. And we'll see the Passover lamb, I think, clearly in our passage next week. As we spend more of this time looking at that strange story of the bridegroom of blood. But for now, let us think about this great and mighty God. Worship Him, the one who is unchangeable, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The great and merciful God is who is able to change hearts, hard hearts into flesh. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 and 10. Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom. Although, that, although it is not wisdom of this age or rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. Or if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Here we see clearly, that we might not be able to understand or fathom the depths of God's sovereignty. But God, through His whole Scripture, has taught us how He is sovereign over all things. We can understand the masterful hand behind the chess moves. We might not understand the Master's sovereign hand moving the parts. But we understand that He is indeed moving. That He imparts the secret and hidden wisdom of God given to us through the Spirit who understands God. that we would be able to give glory and honor. We can make sense of Christ's crucifixion because we know it was a part of God's plan. It wasn't merely chance or circumstance, but all a part of God's plan to be able to show and reveal His mercy to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, We give you thanks and praise that you are the one who has changed our hearts from concrete to flesh. Lord, once what might have made our hearts hard is now a blessing that we receive. What once is a foul stench in our nostrils is now the sweet aroma of the gospel. Lord, we pray and give thanks to you that you are the one who is able to change the hearts for your glory be able to use vessels for dishonor and vessels for honor. Lord, let us trust in your sovereign power over all things and all creatures that we will be able to see use all things for your glory. We pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.